Will, will, will we praise them forever? If our hearts are too broken, reading a story about a man whose heart was broken, a, a young lady of whom he was very fond, there's no evidence that he ever had more than a passing acquaintance with her. She died in her young 20s very tragically, and he was undone. And his physician said, I've never seen a man more full of sorrow. The man was Abraham Lincoln. What if we're that heartbroken and we won't praise anything ever again because all we can feel is sorrow? We're kind of working our way through books of the Bible one week at a time. And last week we looked at the book of Ezra. Today we're looking at the book of Nehemiah. I'm just going to guess Nehemiah is not on your top 100 list of things to do with your spare time, right? Why is that book even in the Bible? Why did it make God's top 66 list of things he wanted his people to be able to read when they were hurting? The book of Nehemiah exists for moments like that. The moments when all you can remember is the failure and the loss and the pain. When all you can feel is, is your, your mind is like a smartphone and the news feed is full of articles like all the times you let everybody down. The top 15 ways you qualify as chief loser. When that's all you can sense, and God wants you to know joy, the book of Nehemiah exists because God wants to strengthen his people by speaking joy into our sorrow. At the heart of that book is something that Kathleen's going to read for us. When Ezra and Nehemiah come together, to say to a people who can only hear reasons for weeping and tears, God wants to give you joy. Let's listen from the book of Nehemiah. The reading for today comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Husham, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, 
Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelata, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our God. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathleen. Kathleen deserves some uh, hazardous duty pay. (laughs) Right? What kind of jerk picks that text and asks sweet Kathleen to read it? (laughs) Me, my kind. Every culture, every nation has some some version of this story, right? Uh, most of us in the United States know it as Cinderella, and um, you know the story. Like all these awful things have happened in Cinderella's life, the, the death of her mother, the death of her father, and then the stepmother comes in, and, um, and there's this opportunity, you know, that uh, the... Uh, the shoe and the dress and there's a ball and maybe I can marry the prince and get out of this horrible situation. Stepsisters only make it worse, right? The story just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and and then she can't go to the ball. But the fairy godmother steps in. And from that point on, you know the story is going to end with joy. There may may be a lot more difficulties to work through. But the story is not going to end with sorrow. Now, not every nation, not every culture is involved in the next kind of story because it's about baseball, right? Cinderella, universal appeal, that kind of story in almost every language, every culture. Baseball, well, only a few nations follow the sport of baseball. But everybody who loves to cheer for anybody can identify with um, the fear that, you know, your team has made the World Series. They're, They're on the pinnacle of winning the championship. The only problem is they've lost three games already, and uh, they're about to be eliminated, and um, they're behind, and it's the ninth inning, 
and there are two outs and two strikes, and you're one strike away from having to watch the stinking Texas Rangers celebrate on your home turf. They've got the champagne bottles already cold in the locker room because you are down and out. And then David Freeze steps to the plate and he hits a home run. (laughs) And you call your next door neighbor to say, did you just have a heart attack? Because I'm worried about you. You know, you've had some health issues this year. and, And the story ends with joy. Because in the 11th inning, David Freeze hits another home run. And the next night, the Cardinals win it all. That moment when everything looks so awful and then joy breaks in, right? Experienced that in college when um, kind of a relationally challenged guy. Believe it or not, the young ladies were not lining up to go out with me. I know that may shock some of you, but it was not happening, right? And, and I, I had this sense that God wanted me to be married. I don't feel particularly equipped for a long-term faithful life as a single person. I need somebody else sharpening me in this close way. felt that sense and went out on some dates and everything was just bombing like uh, awful so one night I looked at my roommate we were we were getting ready to go out for um, I think we were going to RUF uh, Reformed University Fellowship our our college campus ministry and uh, we were leaders in that and uh so we were just talking as we were getting ready. I said, Dave, you know what? I'm just done. Forget this marriage thing. I am, uh, I, I am clearly not good at connecting with uh, young women in, in healthy ways that would lead to a good relationship. I, I, I think I just need to forget about this whole thing until I finish college, graduate from seminary, and then I'll come back to it. That night I met Tricia. Whoa. Why do we love stories like that? Why, do we, why does every culture tell the Cinderella story in some way? Why do we remember the moment when, when, when your team was just about to die and, and suddenly victory comes why do we remember stories like that uh, Tolkien had a word for it J.R.R. Tolkien he called this you catastrophe we all know what a catastrophe is right it's when the bad thing comes out of nowhere and destroys your world you means good in Greek so Tolkien made this word up he said you catastrophe is that moment That sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. That moment when everything changes. Tolkien compared it to, imagine the pain if you had a a hip that was forced out of socket. The pain of feeling that the intensity, the grief, the tears, the, 
the anguish, the literal gut-wrenching as every muscle in your body contracts trying to find some relief. Imagine if suddenly, pow, it's popped back into socket and the wave of relief that crashes over you at that moment. Imagine if all that pain is gone in an instant. Tolkien said, that's what I'm talking about. We were designed to live in a story that won't end with sorrow. It will end with joy. And so when we hear of these moments, whether it's the the college junior finally meeting the person who will help him to grow, learning her name, and working up the courage to ask her if she'd like to talk a little bit longer. When we hear the story of Cinderella, when we see the relatively meaningless victory on a sports field. We know those things don't really last and they don't count for anything. And next year, somebody else will win the championship. And next year, your team will lose and you won't ever use that story in a sermon. But why do we love it so much in the moment? And Tolkien says, because we know deep down we were made for a world that works like that, where joy breaks in and changes everything. And that's why the book of Nehemiah exists. Because that's the kind of story that God is telling. He is telling a story where joy is meant to overwhelm our sorrows. He's speaking into our grief. Why would the people that Kathleen was reading about Why would they have been filled with sorrow? You remember as she read the story, right? Ezra stands up to read from the law of Moses. He reads for at least four hours. And as he does so, the people begin to mourn and weep. Why would the reading of God's word have caused them to be filled with sorrow? There are lots of reasons. Let's just kind of poke into a few of them. One reason, I think, is they're standing there sensing, as a people, we have forgotten God. It has been so long since we cared to hear what he has to say to us. We've been so far away from him. Some of us don't even know who he is anymore. This God who's the God of our fathers and grandfathers and and all the way back and we don't even know him. And is it too late? Was Israel kind of standing, having that roommate conversation and saying, you know what, Dave, I just think it's too late for me. It's never going to work, this relationship with God. And at that moment, God says... I want to speak joy into your world. I want you to know me. It is not too late. I want you to know me. So look at the the proof, the evidence of that from these words in Nehemiah chapter 8. God wants us to know him, so he sends messengers. He says, I will send my messengers so that you will know me. Verse 1, Ezra the scribe brings out the book of the law of Moses. God wants us to know him, so he raises up messengers, real live people like Moses, like other prophets in the days of the Old Testament. 
like the apostles in the days of the New Testament. God says, I want you to know me. And because of that, I'm going to do what it takes to speak your language. I'm going to send my messengers, my spokesmen. I'm going to, I'm going to speak languages that you can understand. Verses 2 and 3. Make that very clear, right? Who was listening as Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses? Men and women and all who were able to understand. That means people who weren't adults yet, but who were old enough to understand. God is speaking in language that that can be understood. Not just understood by men, not just understood by women, not just understood by adults. He speaks language that real people can understand. The book of John in the New Testament is often described as uh, being a puddle of water, a pool of water, so deep that an elephant could swim in it and never touch the bottom, so shallow that a child can wade in it. Because John speaks simple language. It takes 500 words to translate the Gospel of John, which has some of the most profound thoughts ever uttered in human history, into Japanese. 500 word vocabulary. Very simple. Why? God wants you to know Him. He doesn't speak religious gobbledygook that only a small set of experts can understand. He says, gather the men, gather the women, gather the children who are able to comprehend Gather the five-year-olds. Let's see what they can understand. Gather the 15-year-olds. I bet they can work through all these lists of names. Gather real people to understand languages that are real enough to be translated. As the text says what the Levites and Ezra were doing, they were helping people understand the words. Why is this? Ezra's reading Hebrew, and yet he's reading the Hebrew language to people who, who don't know Hebrew well anymore. To people who, in the land of Babylon, under exile, have begun to speak the international language of the day, Aramaic. And so hearing the scriptures read in Hebrew, they're not going to understand much. So what do Ezra and the other Levites do? They translate. They say, let me speak this in your language. God wants you to know him. So when he spoke, he didn't say, okay, Hebrew only. If you want to know me, you got to learn Hebrew. And he didn't say in, in the year 1000 AD, Latin only. If you want to know me, you got to know Latin. And he doesn't say today, English only. If you want to know me, you've got to be an English speaker. God speaks language that is real and can be translated. And it can be transmitted. It can be written down in a book. So it can be handed to other people. Why? Oh, because if you want to be a good religious person, you have to have a religious book. No, because God wants you to know him. The fact that we have Bibles, the word Bible simply means book. The fact that we have a book 
recording the words of God's spokesmen and messengers is not because we want to be a good religious people. It is because in God's heart is this desire for you to know joy. So that in the moments when you think, I'm too far gone, I can never know him, I have forgotten him, there's nothing I can do to change it, this relationship between me and him is never going to work, he steps in and says, I want you to know me. No matter what language you speak, no matter where on this planet you come from, no matter what century you live in, I want you to know me. Once when I was pastoring another church, kind of working away on some administrative stuff in the office, and uh, saw a car driving through the parking lot kind of quickly, come to a pretty abrupt stop. And um, a young woman walked very purposefully toward my office, so I walk out to meet her, because this was unusual. Uh, middle of the day, she's a homemaker with young children, kind of not normal for her to be popping into the church office. Can I help? You need to come with me right now. Things are bad at home. So I go. Things were bad at home. Moment of crisis. A lot of deception. I come to a head. After a couple hours talking things through, uh, the young husband kind of hung his head. He wouldn't look at me. He said, I'm sorry. I was hoping we could be friends. I said, what do you mean? Well, you know, I was hoping we could be friends, but now I guess that's not going to happen. I looked at him and I said, buddy, how do you think I make friends? I mean, this is how I get to know people, right? When the world's imploding and I get to step in and, and you build some pretty close relationships that way. You get to wade through deep stuff together. I had another friend, a running buddy, and we just sort of had this rule, like, you, you aren't really running buddies until one of you spits on the other. Like, you, you're just so close, and you're working through sweat, and, and, and when that sweat and spit starts to rub off on each other, you know you're getting close. Sounds gross, I know. <laughs> but, but do you hear that sense of God doesn't run away when you get a little sweaty? When you stand there weeping in your moment of sorrow, when Abraham Lincoln is undone by his grief, God doesn't just run away. He doesn't say, forget it. I guess we can't be friends. He runs toward you. He says, I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am. I want to speak language you can understand. He wants us to know him. So when scripture is open, when you hear the law of Moses read, don't think that is make-believe from another world that is a list of rules telling me what to do think god is breaking into all my sorrows because he wants me to know him that's the first thought when you have opportunity to hear the scriptures whether it's in a setting like this or whether it's privacy of your own home whether it's a few minutes you have of time alone the beginning of the day when everybody else is quiet or whether it's listening to something as you commute to from work. When you have opportunity to hear from God's Bible words, 
the first instinct is not, man, yeah, I can check that off my list. That's my religious duty done for the day. The first instinct is God wants me to know him. And we say, Lord, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. My life is falling apart. I was hoping we could be friends. And he says, I was hoping so too. I want so much to know you and for you to know me. I will speak my word into your world. There's another reason that God's people might have been filled with sorrow as they heard his scriptures read on this day so many centuries ago. So time is not my native language. I'll just confess that, okay? And sometimes I get excited and I have to like, what time is it? Yes. Okay, good. Um, Imagine God's people hearing laws read and, and knowing that they were in the very process of having to rebuild the city of Jerusalem a temple rebuilt just a few decades earlier than this event to replace one that had stood for centuries. Walls still in disrepair. The whole city being rubble and ruin. And everybody still having these fresh memories of being enslaved by the Babylonians and hauled off to a distant land. And still, every time you get together, you're sharing those horror stories of what it was like. And walking past graves of those who didn't escape when the Babylonian army invaded your city. And those memories and understanding the reason all that happened to us is God was rooting us out of our land because we had ignored his commands. And now it's been maybe decades since we had a public gathering to hear God's words read. And all we can think is every time Ezra reads something that God expects of us is we didn't do it, we didn't do it, we didn't do it. We failed, we failed, we failed. And I know that many of you in this room think that's what church is all about. And here's how I know it. Because so many weeks, people come to me and and after the service is over, They say things like, oh, pastor, you really stepped on my toes today. Oh, pastor, you you really stuck the knife in today. And then you twisted it. And you took it back out. You stuck it back in and twisted it again. And, And I'm feeling really bad right now. And I am miserable. And all you did was for half an hour remind me of how I have failed. And thank you for being a good pastor. Like that's how we measure effective interaction with God's word is it left me feeling like scum. <laughs> no, not everybody who says that. I mean, some people who say that, they're, they're, they're really sensing, ah, there's, God's got something to teach me. So I'm not speaking about you, but I'm speaking about that deep sense that we sometimes have. That the reason God's laws exist is simply to show us our failure. And I want you to hear what Ezra and the Levites said to God's people on this day. 
they said, do not mourn, do not weep. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God speaks into your sorrow, and he says, I want to give you strength. This is not simply a time to remember your failures and your weakness. This is a time for me to give you strength. If you already had strength, do you think God would need to give it to you? So there must be some humility here. But hear God saying today, if if your sorrow is caused over your failures, your past. And I know many of us feel like there there's some things in my past that are so There are such horrible departures from God's design for me that they doom my future to just more failure. And God wants to step in and say, no, I want to give you strength. This word for strength means a safe place to hide, a fortress. It means... uh, Well, there's one in the desert of Judea near the Dead Sea created by Herod. Stronghold carved into rock up on a cliff face so armies could gather at the foot of the cliff and you could sit and be safe and not worry. God says, I want to give you that. I'm going to give you a life that's free from the storm. I'll give you a safe place to be while the storm passes. The armies will still come. They'll surround you. The enemy will be there, but strong walls of protection to absorb all the blows so that you can recover your health and strength and be ready one day to go back into the battle. God says in your sorrow, I want to give you that kind of strength. I want to give you strength. I want you to have that kind of safe place. I'll surround you. People hearing this read for the first time, the joy of the Lord is your strength, would have, would have thought God is saying, I'll surround you with something that will keep you safe. But we're at a different point in the story now, after the coming of Jesus, and we realize what God was saying, is I'll surround you with someone who will absorb all the blows of the enemy and keep you safe so that you can be whole again. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I want you to know me. I want to give you strength. And God is saying, I want to speak joy into all of your sorrows. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Tolkien said this about the you catastrophe, this sort of sense that 
stories get worse and worse and worse and worse. And then that moment of piercing joy and happiness, miraculously coming out of nowhere. Tolkien said, the reason we love stories like that, the reason people in every continent, every century, every culture have loved stories like that is because we are living in a story like that. And Tolkien concluded by saying this, the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible. That the resurrection of Jesus was the moment when God said, I will step into all the sorrows and absorb all the blows and experience all the miseries and then I will turn it all on its head by breaking the power of death and bringing my son back to life. I will take away all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame and I will raise my son in triumph Because this story, I'm stealing words from Tim Keller now, as he comments on what Tolkien had to say about this part of God's heart. Keller says, this story does not end in sorrow. This story ends with joy. So so we could say that um, the story about Jesus ending in resurrection is like Cinderella. The story about Jesus is, is, is like seeing the Cardinals win the World Series in 2011. The story about Jesus is like the night that Jimmy met Tricia. But that's backward. We love all these stories because they're like what God is doing for his people and what God did through his son. The reason you love those stories is because you were made to love the story about Jesus. You may not know that story well, but you were made to love it. You may not believe that story is true, but you were made to know it, believe it, love it. And your heart will ache for that kind of piercing joy until you come to know Jesus. The book of Nehemiah, God sends people, priests, Levites, just teachers, pastors, to stand alongside his people and say in their moment of sorrow, I want to give you joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Because he was pointing forward to another day when God would say, yes, this is the joy I've been waiting to give you. I will send my son. He will lay down his life. He will absorb all the blows that you cannot handle. And then when the night is at its darkest... And it looks like this relationship between us and God is never going to work. Jesus is raised from the dead. And joy shatters sorrow. That's why the book of Nehemiah exists. 
That's why Kathleen reads to us. That's why Ezra read to God's people in that day. Because there's something in God's heart that wanted so badly to speak joy into your sorrow that he sent his son to be that final word of joy.